Ever since Jesus was born, there has been great debate on who he is, and sometimes this led into conflict. You're talking about Yeshua, you know, that brown guy who's a refugee, a uh, big socialist. And some people used him for their political agendas. The most famous person in the world by far said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. I said, no. He said, who's more famous? I said, Jesus Christ. Others used him to make sense of their experience. Was Jesus gay? Either way, there's a clear question being asked. Who is Jesus? The question that our generation of young people on the campus are asking today is, who art thou, Lord? Who is Jesus? You're listening to Young and Sanctified. I'm your host, Justin. And every episode, I talk to some amazing people hoping to cultivate childlike faith and seek Christ-centered knowledge. So, grab your coffee and a notebook or whatever you need and join me as we grow together. Dr. Vince Bantu, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So, I gotta say, I'm a huge fan of your work. I came across your lecture that's on YouTube for a class, then I picked up your book, and I'm just blown away by your your scholarship. I do believe you are changing the game. Um, so I'm curious to know what got you interested in ancient Christianity, you know, the ancient languages, and in general, what's a snapshot of your story? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think, uh, though, yeah, those go really well together because, um, you know, I think what really got me interested in the early church was um, really rooted in a concern that I have about Christianity as a whole uh, constantly being associated with Western or white culture. Um, to the point that, you know, people around the world just kind of associate the Western world and Christianity as synonymous or that Christianity is really a product of the Western world. Um, and I think that that really creates a, a, a problem. And I mean, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a scholar, but I'm also a pastor and, uh, and just a Christian. And that's my primary, you know, more important identity to me. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I've always been someone has a has a strong um passion for evangelism and uh apologetics and and discipleship and just and just sharing the gospel and let and uh really just uh making the name of Jesus uh you know exalted you know among all the peoples and and uh and so I think that you know constantly running into that um dynamic was really was really a, a burden to me uh the way that people see Christianity as a western religion um you know, that's something that I uh, see all the time. And I, I even, uh, you know, feel pretty strongly that that's the single greatest obstacle to uh, the gospel in the world. Uh, if, you know, in the sense that, you know, most people in the world are not Western, right? Most people in the world are African, Asian, indigenous, mm-hmm. Hispanic. And, you know, I mean, if you're in the Western world, Europe or North America, Australia, or, you know, predominantly Western people of Western descent, um, you know, that's not really going to be an issue. And most apologetic uh, resources are aimed at doing apologetics or evangelism in the Western context. So, you know, that's when people have more arguments about, I don't know, scientific objections to God or, you know, not believing that God exists or, uh, you know, different things like that. Um, but, you know, the but the, in the majority of the world, most people do believe in God uh, or, you know, some kind of God. So that's actually not really the issue. It is not, you know, oh, I don't think this. I don't think that miracles can happen or I don't, you know, uh, usually most, most people in the world, uh, believe in the miraculous and believe in the divine. Um, but, uh, but it's, but, you know, again, in the majority world, that's not so much the issue. The issue is 
that Christianity in particular is associated with the Western world. And so at best, it's often seen as um, it's just not my people's religion, right? It's not for my people. This isn't for us. Mm. It's for Western people. Um, mm. uh, or at worst, it's, you know, often associated with, you know, acts of colonialism and slavery and injustice. And so then it's even more mm. vehemently rejected saying, well, no, that religion is a, th is a threat to my people. That religion has mm. done harm to my people. And so I want nothing to do with it. And a lot of that is really valid uh, and true. Um, and so, uh, and I grew up, you know, in an urban African-American context in St. Louis, Missouri, in the West side. And, and that's a common, you know, uh, perception in the urban African-American community as well. I mean, obviously, you know, that's in that context, many people are Christians. Um, but if, again, if you're, if you focus it and, if, and this is the same, cause a lot of people will say, well, what are you talking about, Vince? Like there's a lot of, you know. Christianity is blowing up most in Africa and Asia and Latin America, and that's the center of Christianity now. And I say, amen. Um, but the thing I would add to that is to say that, but, but I'm talking about non-Christians in that part of the world. I'm talking about people who are hmm. not yet saved. And if you're doing evangelism in those spaces, and it's the same in the African-American community, again, like without competition, the number one objection to people who are not Christians in those spaces and contexts to becoming a Christian is the association of Christianity with Western or white culture and the idea that Christianity is a threat or it's a white man's religion. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a major issue. I, I would say it's the biggest issue. And, uh, and so I think that's why when I first, um, and I, I learned about that and, uh, you know, growing up saw that even as a, I, I was a Christian at a young age and I, uh, had a passion for evangelism and was sharing the gospel, um, felt called to ministry when I was 16 and, and, you know, went away to Bible school and, but that was always the biggest issue I would wrestle with, even with my own peers. And I even grew up in a, you know, kind of a very, I would say, Europeanized expression of Christianity. Uh, and then I went to, you know, Christian college, study theology, and I was still introduced to a very Eurocentric kind of history of the of Christianity. And, and yet I was always very uh, concerned about this issue. And so when I was in seminary, I took a class that actually was an, a trip as well. And I went to Egypt. And that was the first time that I had learned about the history of the church in Egypt and not only Egypt, but also Nubia and Ethiopia and, 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 and other places as well. And I was blown away and I was, you know, I was thinking that this is a missing piece of the story, uh, that I think if more people knew about, um, you know, the way that the gospel has been global from the beginning, right. It, it didn't one day become global, but it's been global from, you know, the very beginning. Um, that I think that would help people to change this perception uh, and to understand again that Christianity has always been for all people groups and uh, and mm -hmm. so that's really kind of what got me into it is really kind of an evangelistic and and ministerial reason of you know why I'm really interested in just uncovering and just trying to share as much of the earth and that's why I'm really focused on the early history because again you know uh, as much as the the church is becoming global. Uh, in new ways or is is in new in new ways that it wasn't before. I mean, again, like I said, it's always been global, but but certainly in the 20th century, it's spreading in a new context and to the point now where, again, the the center of the church is places like Africa and Asia. Um, but but also, um, again, if I'm as I do, is if I'm looking at it from the perspective of non-believers in that area, uh, a further obstacle can be uh, you know, again, the history of the last few hundred years and how Christianity came into many of these areas and that it often came in the context of Western imperialism and colonialism. Um, and, and it was often to some degree embedded in that. And so that can still, 
have this sense of, again, many non-Western, non-Christian people that, well, even if there are many Christians in Africa and Asia, Latin America, it still came from Western people. That was the source. Mm -hmm. And so it can, it can still, and, and on top of that, oftentimes there's a very Westernized version of Christianity that is being practiced in many parts of the world, that even though it's practiced by black and brown people around the world, that often it's a very Europeanized or Americanized version of Christianity. And again, that can even even further distance non-Christians in those spaces. And so I think that's what really got me interested in the fact that there's there are these trajectories and histories of Christianity that not only did not come through uh you know, kind of the arrival of European missionaries and and colonialists, um, but it even preceded that, and it even preceded mm-hmm. expressions of Christianity in um, in Europe. And so that's why my focus is not only really on uh, Africa and Asia and early church there, but especially uh, in the in the early periods. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, and reading your book, that just makes total sense. That I mean, your book was screaming that that theme of you want people to like unlearn this lie, this myth that it's a European uh, or a white religion. And I'm with you because I, I worked, um, in my context, I'm with the Salvation Army. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of good, but something that we do is we standardize faith. You have to wear a specific uniform. You have to you know, believe the same creeds and all this stuff. And so I'm with you on this idea of there is definitely a dominant European way of believing. And so much so we, we tell what others uh, ought to wear. So I really, that's why I, I just grabbed your, your work. It was uh, captivating. Um, so let's transition on uh, your book and your lecture, if that's all right. Oh, sure. Yeah. So in both your book, at least in the early, in the beginning, few chapters and your, um, your lecture, you focus a lot on the Council of Chalcedon. So can you stay, and you even said like there was no other Christological controversy that caused a lasting schism. That still persists today. So, could you uh, share like what led up to this council, and what was uh, the result of it? I know that's a loaded question, so you have to be selective. But oh yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. So I would, you know, I would say, um, no, that's exactly right. That that you know, I mean, obviously there there were multiple schisms in the church that that we still feel the effects of today. I mean, there was the you mm-hmm. know Protestant Reformation in Europe in the 16th century, right. and then you know, uh, and then, you know, even multiple divisions within denominations, you know, from there. And, and even within, um, e- even earlier, there was an East West schism in the 11th century between the, what later became known as the, you know, Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic divisions. And so, um, but, but yeah, I think, um, especially with regard to conversations about, um, you know, cross-cultural identity and, and again, like just the whole issue that we're talking about, about the relation between Christianity and cultural identity that, um, you know, that, that the Council of Chalcedon, uh, and the schism there was an even earlier schism. And, uh, and also it was really the, you know, really the only, um, schism that, uh, or is probably the most significant schism that has to do again with geographical and cultural lines. I mean, you could say to a degree that the East-West schism in the 11th century was also cultural because you had the Greek speaking, you know, Eastern Europeans and the Latin speaking Western. And that was actually a part of it. That the language of the liturgies was a part of it, um, you know, of that schism as well. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, both Eastern Europe and Western Europe both remain deeply entrenched in, in their own expression of Christianity. And so like neither one has, is seen as, you know, more or less authentically Christian. 
Uh, whereas the regions of the world that became uh, kind of at, uh, you know at odds with the dominant what we now call European world at the Council of Chalcedon are now regions of the world where Christianity is actually not the dominant religion in most of these parts of the world in in East Africa and uh, and also in uh, the Middle East and in and in South Asia. Um, you know, with probably the exception uh, with a couple of exceptions, Armenia, Ethiopia. And, uh, you know, uh, hmm. being notable exceptions, but for most of these parts of the world, um, after the time of Chalcedon, they, they came under, many of them came under Islamic dominance. Um, and so to the point now where the descendants of those communities are, um, are minorities in their own lands as Christians. And, and these are also parts of the world, ironically, where even in these parts of the world, in the Middle East and in the Arabian Peninsula and Northeast Africa, where Christianity was extremely prevalent and from the very beginning, even now, they still are dealing with that same issue that we were just talking about a minute ago of people seeing Christianity as a Western religion, which is insane because that's Christianity was in these lands long before it was in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and yet there's still that perception uh, in these very lands. And so I think that's why the Council of Chalcedon is very unique in that way, because, um, you know, what had happened was uh, there were various, you know, church councils. And I, I always like to point out as a way of always, um, even again, decolonizing or decentering uh, church history is always to remind folks that there were church councils, but I always call them Roman church councils because if, we're, if that's mm -hmm. what we're talking about, because um, one of the issues, I think a way that we continue to uh, exacerbate kind of the Westernization of church history is when we describe Western church history or Roman church history, and we just kind of you know, like you said, standardize it as if it was efficacious for all people. But, you know, I, so I like to situate it and say, well, there were various Roman church councils. A lot of times the, the church councils that happened in the Roman empire, council of Nicaea is a famous one. A lot of people have heard of that in 325 people will say, oh, that was the first big church council. And I was at, well, no, it wasn't actually, because there were other imp imperial church councils that were just as big in scope in the Persian Empire, which was the, you know, also a very massive empire, it was just as big as the Roman Empire, and there were just as many Christians. In the early church, there, you know, there were imperial councils in the Roman Empire and in the Persian Empire. So it's always important to kind of identify which context we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, you know, because, for example, the majority of the Persian Empire had its own councils, and especially after the 5th century, they just kind of were doing their own thing uh, and had a completely different history uh, that was that overlapped to a degree, but also is pretty distinct. So, you know, so that's why when I when I say councils, I just identify which ones I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So the in, the in now the Roman Church um, in the Roman Empire, which was mo you know a lot of Southern and uh, Western Europe, North Africa, and some parts of the Western Middle East, uh, you know, and and parts of the Northern Arabian Peninsula, you know, just using the modern terms today. You, even just in those descriptions, you can see that the Roman Empire was very diverse. It had it, it encompassed uh, Europe, Africa, and Asia, uh, parts of Western Asia and Northern Africa. Um, and you know, for the most part, the Rome, the the Church in the Roman Empire was, um, you know, on the same page uh, for you know for a large part. Um, and uh, you know, the after the Council of Chalcedon, uh, excuse me, of Nicaea, three twenty five, that was when the the Roman Church, for example, was dealing with whether or not the Jesus is God, and there was a theologian named Arius who said Jesus is less than the Father. Now, even again, even that was a you know that's why we have to be careful and specify what we're talking about. You know, it's kind of like when people say. Um, 
today when people say ethnic food, mm. uh, it, it just kind of annoys me because <laughs> what what they really mean by that is like non-white food, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you know, even if, you know, even with theology, we put, you know, modifiers in front of the, we say black theology or Hispanic theology or, you know, Asian theology, but we don't call, but when we were talking about Jonathan Edwards or Martin Luther or, or, or John Piper or whatever, we don't call it white theology or Western or European, we just call it theology. And so that's like a white normativity, mm-hmm. uh, in how we do history. And so even with history, we do that. Um, and so the, so again, the 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 issue that was in the fourth century in the Roman Empire was whether or not Jesus was God, and there were these Arians that were saying Jesus is not God; he's less. And then that was an issue for them. But again, in the Persian Empire, that wasn't an issue; that wasn't a question. Everybody was on the same page that Jesus is God and that he's equal with the Father. So uh, even to this time today, you know, a lot of times questions in the dominant culture are not as pertinent in other cultures. And so in the Roman Empire, again, most people that the Council of Nicaea it was it was reaffirmed that Jesus is fully God. God, um, and that he was uh, what uh, in Greek they said homoousios to the father uh, and most Christians agreed with that but in the fifth century um, there uh, in the later fourth and early fifth century there was more and more conversation about what that really means and looks like uh, especially by a lot of you know theologians in the Roman Empire and how if Jesus is God how is he also a human and how does that work together and so that really led, and then there was even debates about even how Mary plays into that. And especially in the early 400s, um, there was a big debate between a couple of different Roman bishops, one in, in Egypt and the other in Constantinople on, you know, whether or not you should talk about Mary as being the bearer of God uh, or just the bearer of the incarnate Christ. And so there that was a big issue as well. So this was increasingly becoming an issue of how to really talk about Jesus's humanity and divinity. Um, and then, you know, in the mid 400s, there again, there were more and more, uh, you know, different approaches of how to talk about this. Um, but and then it even got into like Greek language nuance around the difference between like person and nature. And so there were some Christians in the Roman Empire that were saying that Jesus has one nature and and it's fully human and fully divine. And that view became kind of the spark that led up into the Council of Chalcedon, where, um, and and part of it was also, you know, I mean, you know, some of it, not all of it, but some of it was over power because you had different major cities in the Roman Empire, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, Constantinople, Rome, that were all kind of major centers of the church in the Roman Empire. Again, I keep saying in the Roman Empire, like I said, because the actually the Persian Empire had its own major cities and 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 all that. And by this time, Ethiopia was also a Christian empire, as was Armenia. So you had lots of different councils and capitals. But in the Roman Empire, there were ba- these various cities that were all kind of vying for control. And that was a part of it as well. But also in the Roman Empire, this became like a tension. And at the, the Council of Chalcedon was called to uh, reject this view that Jesus was one nature. And the, the bishop, of Rome, uh, his name was Leo. He wrote a famous tome where he articulated that Jesus is one person, but he has two natures. Uh, so he's uh, so before that, many of the people were just saying Jesus had one nature. But now Leo actually was the one who was kind of innovating and saying something that was pretty relatively new, actually. Um, and so uh, he was saying he has one person, uh, one hypostasis in Greek, but he has two physis, two natures. And many of the Christians in Egypt. Uh, especially because their patriarch was the one saying the opposite, that Jesus has one nature, they rejected this council and this started the tension. But not not only Egypt, but also uh, Ethiopia was also a Christian nation and it was outside of the Roman Empire. And they they chose to side with the Egyptians. And then a little bit after that, Nubia, which is also an African, 
the nation between Egypt and Ethiopia became a Christian nation. And not only did they become a Christian nation, but they specifically became a Christian nation that sided with the Egyptians as well. And so Africa was really primarily under, especially the Nile Valley, was really kind of all on the same page theologically. And there was a whole, there was like a, a distinct expression of Christianity that was growing there that was seen as heretical by what was the dominant, you know, Roman uh, kind of theology. Now, Egypt was part of the Roman Empire as well. Uh, and that's why the, and that's why I say kind of the dominant part on the other side of the Mediterranean, uh, not only rejected the Egyptian view, but also began to strongly persecute them and try to force them to embrace their two nature theology. And the more they did that, the more Egyptians um, and others rejected that. And not not only the Africans, but also many of the Christians in the Middle East also rejected this view in Syria and Arabia. Um, and, uh, they, you know, they, and, and, you know, many other parts of that part of the world rejected this view as well. And they also embraced the view that Jesus is one nature. And then again, when you get into further East into the Persian territory, and then even, and around the same time, uh, Christianity was also spreading even further East and South from Persia into a, lo- a little bit after this time into the Silk Road, uh, Central and East Asia, and also, also all the way down in South Asia that entire branch of Christianity had yet an even distinct, more distinct, or even a a, a third way of doing Christology that uh, was different from both of these other views of the view, the, the, say, the Chalcedonian view of uh, which became kind of the normative view in what we now call the European or Western world. And then there was the one nature view, which is sometimes called Monophysite, but is is actually probably more appropriately called Neophysite, which is what they call themselves, which believes in one nature. and then that was that became the dominant view in Af- in most of Africa and most of the Middle East. And then also you had another view, which was often it's often erroneously called Nestorianism, um, but it, it actually is you know more referred to more appropriately as the Church of the East. Uh, and today it's actually called the Assyrian Church of the East. And um, and this is the the branch of Christianity that started in Persian territory, but eventually spread all throughout uh, you know the continent of Asia. So by the you know, by the fifth and sixth century, uh, and especially going into the seventh century, um, you Christianity was had had was spreading in every direction in Europe, uh, and it was continuing to spread in new areas of Europe as time went on into the medieval period, uh, all over Europe, all over Africa, and all over Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the most part, uh, although there was you know some nuance to this, for the most part, you also had three kind of Christologies or three distinct. Um, kind of doctrines that were prominent in Europe, Africa, and in Asia that all disagreed with each other. Um, but the difference is that, again, the European side uh, had more of the power um, as, uh, as you know, they were trying to enforce this, this doctrine into the Near Eastern and North African regions that were actually under the Roman Empire, but they were very much minoritized. And then, on top of that, after the Islamic conquest, um, the 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 Muslims in the seventh century had conquered much of this part of the world, and so they conquered the Persian Empire. So that minimized the power of Christians in that part of the world, and then also they conquered North Africa and the Near East. And so these other two expressions of Christianity that were really big in Africa and Asia now became minorities under Islamic dominance. Um, and and so the branch of Christianity that was continuing to grow uh, in Europe where political autonomy was retained, that's 
why that expression of Christianity, the European one, became the dominant global expression. Mm. And today, a lot of these Christians that I'm talking about it in Africa and in Asia are still around. But but ever since the seventh century, they still to this day, some of some of them in some places actually became extinct. Um, even though, like in, for example, in Nubia or in China, these were areas where some of these expressions of Christianity were growing and then eventually became extinct and are no longer around. Uh, and then in other places, like for example, in Egypt or in Syria or, or Iraq, these are other places where the, where the, the Christian communities today are still around, but they're much smaller and they are still struggling to uh, survive and are still living under persecution, not only by, um, you know, the, the dominant Islamic society they live in, but also because they still to this day oftentimes are unnecessarily and erroneously uh, kind of cast aside by much of Western Christendom mm. as heretical or as not real Christians, uh, because oftentimes they're going back to those tensions in the fifth century uh, that they're, you know, these Christological uh, arguments that their Christology is seen as heretical when it actually isn't. Uh, it's often mischaracterized. And even in many Western church history textbooks, it's still, they're often very given very little attention, if any. And if they are kind of giving a passing mention, then the, the oftentimes it's not uncommon to see church historians, Western church historians, mention them and just saying, well, you know, there were, these people were, were schismatic and they were rebellious and they rebelled against the dominant church. And so there's still a Western-centric narrative to the way history is told. Um, and it's also, the, it's misrepresented and they'll say things like, well, they'll, they'll basically just reiterate the arguments of the Roman opponents in the fifth century without critically actually looking at the arguments of the theologians from these parts of the world. And another layer to it is the fact that most of them wrote in other languages, like in Syriac or in Coptic or or Ge'ez or Armenian, that languages that have not been as much uh, of an importance to Western scholars who mainly look at stuff in Greek and Latin. And it, we see that even to the even to the way that you can access church uh, theologians who wrote in Greek and Latin, you can get their writings uh, in English translation on your phone. But many of the theologians that came from these other parts of the world in Africa and Asia, most of us have never even heard of them mm -hmm. before. And let alone, even if we start to learn their names, it's very hard to access their writings. And this is, you know, again, this is this is just kind of a, I mean, I'm, you know, uh, going over it quick, but this is just some of the ways in which not only in the past or historically, but even today, uh, non-Western church history is very, um, uh, is just very, much uh, silenced mm -hmm. and and pushed to the side, and that's why it's so important to know the names of some of these theologians, of people like Timothy Elaris or Benjamin of Alexandria or Georgius of Sagla or Walata Petros or Yeznik of Kolb or um, you know uh, uh, Narsai. Uh, many of these other theologians that uh, you know I'm, I would imagine to many believers are very uh, not familiar names, mm -hmm. but many of them wrote copious amounts of theology on par with people that we might be more familiar with, like Augustine or or Martin Luther or John Calvin or Thomas Aquinas. Uh, many of these other people wrote just as much, if not more, and yet the European names are more household. We're familiar with them, but some of these African or Asian names are not familiar. And so that's, I think, again, that's just why it's important to have these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I remember just even learning about Ephraim the Syrian and how he started using language that I think from your, if I'm remembering uh, correctly, that he like started pioneering some of the, the way the Easterns uh, talked about Christ. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Um, you know, in particular, uh, he, um, and, and, and it's interesting too, because, you know, I think that's a great point to bring up because uh, part of the reason why I was just talking about how some names are known and some aren't, 
part of the reason is that most of the African and Asian names that I just mentioned, mm -hmm. most of them were writing after this schism. And so that's where it becomes tricky and people, uh, you know, people, you know, at that point, once there's this big schism, yeah. then one person's saint is another person's heretic. Mm -hmm. And so they don't want to claim a lot of these people. Um, now, again, Western Protestants or global Protestants shouldn't really have a big deal anyway, because they, you know, we will, we will sometimes kind of just pick and choose who we're going to draw on. So they're really, you know, um, and so, you know, but, but even still, because of, I, I think, Eurocentricity, again, even to many Western or other Protestants, um, that again, even so, like a, a Thomas Aquinas is w more known, uh, than, you know, a, um, a Narsai or a, uh, um, you know, Georgius of Sagla. But, but Ephraim is interesting because he actually lived in the fourth century before this schism. And so everybody can claim him. In fact, even in the Roman Catholic church, he's a, he's, you know, seen as a doctor of the church and he's, uh, you know, he, he lived before this schism. So all branches of Christendom can theoretically claim him as theirs because he, you know, now everybody should be claiming everybody, in my opinion, because none of these people are heretics. They have different ways of art articulating what is ultimately a, an impossible mystery to fully articulate with any human language, which is that God became a human. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, in my opinion, they're all believers, but, um, but certainly everyone can claim Ephraim because he lived in the three hundreds, but even still, as you more, as you pointed out, um, even in the three hundreds, I think we see some of the the foreshadows or some of the beginnings of some of this cultural tension. And, and I think that's part of the problem of why in the fourth century, why it was a really harmful thing for the global church for Christianity becomes so associated with one kind of geocultural political entity. Mm. Um, and with that was the Roman empire, you know, with the alleged conversion of Constantine, Christianity started to become much more associated with the Roman empire. Um, now, there were already uh, smaller Christian empires, like I mentioned Armenia. That was a Christian nation even before the Roman Empire, but it's a much smaller country. And so once the Roman Empire, which is one of the biggest empires in the world, became Christian, which is a question, another question, um, but once it became seen as Christian, that was the beginning of what we're still dealing with today, starting back to the beginning of our conversation, that people associate Christianity with one particular cultural identity. And that automatically created problems as it already still does today. As I mentioned earlier, evangelistically it creates problems because if you tell someone about Jesus and if they're from a culture where Jesus reminds people of slavery, of colonialism, of Indian boarding schools, of slave castles, of plantations, of, 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 you know, Pajarado colonial systems in India, all these things that it brings up uh, trauma for people, then, you know, that started already in the three hundreds because uh, at that time, as I mentioned, there were many Christians in Persia, but once Christianity became seen as the Roman thing, that led to the subsequent persecution of Christians in Persia. Mm. The Persian emperor began to see Christianity as, the, oh, that's the Roman religion, and Rome is my enemy, therefore I'm going to persecute Persian Christians and try to force them to become Zoroastrian. And that was never anything that would have happened before. In the you know first three centuries, that was never the case. Christians were allowed to freely you know exist, and they still were after that. But but you know it was it was much harder, and there was never mass like kind of persecutions of Christians before the conversion of Constantine. Whereas there was actually in the Roman Empire, which is interesting. Um, and so this again, it, it just it, it was never a good idea to associate Christianity with one culture because once you do that. Uh, then it's going to inevitably lead to anybody who's not of that culture is going to feel to some degree that they have to choose between their culture and being a Christian. And that was what the Persian Christians were the first to experience. They were literally led before the court and told you either renounce Jesus um, or or uh, or you die because because they were being seen as 
being a Christian is antithetical to being Persian. Mm. And again, that was never the case before that. Um, and so this was an inevitability that as Christianity became associated with Roman identity, it was it would become increasingly difficult. Um, and, and I think we, again, we see that come to a head in the 400s with the Council of Chalcedon. And now as Christianity is kind of, um, you know, being framed uh, by the Roman Empire and by Roman people, that it also even orthodoxy and what orthodoxy looks like is being framed in Greco-Roman language. And so you have to say Jesus is one who passes us into physics because the language of the, this non-biblical language, this language that really comes out of Platonism and, and Greco-Roman uh, culture is being put on the same level as orthodoxy. And we're still dealing with that today mm -hmm. where Western Christians often put forth their particular expression of, of orthodoxy uh, as, as tantamount to orthodoxy itself. Mm -hmm. and, and then there's not room for other Christians to contextualize the gospel according to their culture. Um, but we're already seeing that uh, in the, you know, the beginnings of that in the 300s with this homoousios thing. But one thing I think is interesting about Ephraim is that, again, even though all sides claim him as orthodox and he was orthodox, I like how he actually expressed orthodoxy according to his own culture. Because Ephraim the Syrian, as you mentioned, was is one of the most prolific church historians in the history of the church. And yet most people have never heard of him, mainly because he wrote in Syriac and for centuries, uh, most Western scholars were saying, well, that's that's, you know, that's a barbaric language. And so there's no need to study it. Mm. But now, thankfully, there's a growing amount of scholarship on Ephraim, understanding that that was ridiculous. This is one of the most complex, nuanced, uh, poetic and yet profound thinkers in the history of the ancient world. Um, and he was a Christian theologian that wrote um, all kinds of biblical treatises, commentaries, sermons. But he also wrote poetry mm. and and uh, did theology in poetry, a, a particular Syrian style of poetry. And he wrote in the Syriac language, which was a dialect of Aramaic, actually. And the Syriac language was actually the gateway for Asian Christianity because it was actually Christians who spoke Syriac who were from an area of the world that we now call kind of southeastern Turkey and northern Syria. But those people who spoke that dialect of Aramaic called Syriac those Christians actually eventually spread all throughout Asia. And we mentioned earlier how Christianity went along the Silk Road all the way to China, and it went all the way through the Indian Ocean trade, all the way to India and, and other places. Those were Syriac-speaking Christians um, that, that, that did that. And Ephraim is their single greatest writer, hands down. Mm. Um, and he wrote in the 300s. And again, he was Orthodox. He critiqued the Arians, and he affirmed the Nicene Creed that Jesus is fully God. But one thing that's interesting is that he did it in a way that was unique to his particular culture. And he uh, wrote in the Syriac language, but he also even uh, used Syriac terms for what in Greek was called homoousios. He used the term barithutho, which means son of the essence, but literally it means kind of of the same essence, that Jesus was barithutho with the Father. He was the same essence as the Father. But he uh, but he also uh, used that term sometimes in academic context, but in ministerial context, he didn't use it at all. And he actually even critiqued the use of it, uh, that the way that it was being promoted, almost as if it's like akin to the Bible, mm -hmm. that 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 this Nicene Creed and this this term homoousios is almost um, that the way that it's being almost like lifted to the level of like it's, you know, it's the word of God or scripture. And he affirmed what it was saying that, yes, Jesus is the same essence. And he clearly critiqued Arians or any other subordinationist Christology that would try to lessen the son to the father. But at the same time, he didn't feel beholden to do it the way the Greeks and the Romans did it. Um, but he did it in his own language and in his own way. And I think that that's just a great example of um, it's an example of how increasingly, even in the mid and late 300s, how there was this 
uh, beginning of kind of the Romanizing of Christian liturgy and architecture and doctrine and all of this stuff. But it also is a great example of how even in the midst of that, there were other Christians who found a way to express orthodox ideas like that Jesus is God, but they did it in their own way and didn't feel beholden to do it in the Western way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So to wrap us up, uh, the final question, I'm curious to know, and you've been touching us a little bit about like even Ephraim the Syrian and even like um, the Egyptian church or whatever, uh, they found a way to express orthodox views in their own cultural context. So looking at today, and the vast, you know, globalized, pluralistic world we live in, how can we, like, engage in other cultures, other ideas, and still remain orthodox? How do we engage in conversations and and um, avoid, like, the conflict that took place after uh, Chalcedon? Uh, does this question make sense? It, it, it does. I think it's a great question. And I think that um, I think that it goes back to the first uh, and second greatest commandment that Jesus himself said mm. that he said all the law is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, I think it go and I think that the church um, for, you know, um, is, you know, oscillates between emphasizing only one of those or the other. Yeah. Uh, I think that if we emphasize our love and our devotion to God and having right, you know, right orthodoxy, right, uh, having right belief, right doctrine, right worship, being right with God. Uh, but we can't do that. First John says we can't do that if we don't love our brother and sister. And we have to realize that, you know, I think that a lot of us as Christians, we uh, sometimes have an underdeveloped or an, an, an unnuanced theology of culture. Uh, mm. or, you know, kind of a, an idea of understanding a relationship between doctrine and culture that while we have to understand the difference between theology and revelation, right? That the gospel is the universal truth for all time. So we have to be right with God. And Jesus says, no one comes to the father except through me. So there is a place for orthodoxy. There is a place for truth <laughs> that Jesus is the only way, truth and the life that he's the only name under which by people may be saved under heaven that people can be saved by. So there is a, a need for orthodoxy and to love God first. Um, and that's revelation. Jesus, God reveals himself through creation and through his spirit and through the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and through his holy word. These are divine revelations. But we have to also understand the distinction between that and theology, mm. right? Theology, like the Nicene Creed, is theology. It's not God's revelation, mm. but it is it, it is a particular group of human beings in their historical, cultural, linguistic uh, setting that are trying their best to give a uh, voice to what God has revealed in Christ Jesus and in through his word. So it's not perfect. It's not, you know, and no, no doctrine or creed ever will be. Um, but it is our historically situated attempt to give voice to and give echo to what God has done in Christ Jesus. And so theology is always cultural. There's no such thing as a non-cultural theology. Uh, and because it's cultural and all, all theology is, so, you know, like we talked earlier about hyphens, right? All theology is hyphenated. So there's no such thing as ethnic theology if what we mean by that is that only certain people are ethnic and other people aren't. Mm -hmm. But we're all ethnic and we all are are limited and we're all rooted in a particular racial, ethnic, linguistic, geographical, uh, historical situation. And what that means is that our view of God's revelation is from our particularity. And so, you know, uh, Andrew Walls, the missiologist, used an example of of, of the church is like a theater. And I mentioned this in the book, but we're all, we are the, we're the, the audience watching the play of the gospel unfold. And there's, we're all looking at one play uh, and it's the gospel. So, right. It's not pluralism because that's the other extreme. We, if we only want to look at love our neighbor and right. And, and nowadays there's a lot of emphasis on that. And it's good because we need to unpack 
and 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 repent and tell the truth about the ways in which one particular expression of Christianity was put upon other people and and uh, and used as a mechanism of colonization, and that's not right. Um, but we can't go to the other stream and say, well, your truth is your truth and, you know, pluralism and relativism. And no, because we have to first love the Lord your God and, and we only come to him through Jesus Christ. Um, and so and but uh, but at the same time, we have to respect and give room that the theater, the audience is all looking at that one play from different perspectives. And nobody has the the director's view except God. Uh, and so we uh, so someone on the right side of the stage sees things that someone on the left can't see. And, and vice versa. Someone in the front row can see things different than someone in the balcony. All of our views are limited and only by coming together do we really get a fuller picture of it. And we can't get the fullest picture. Only God has that and we'll get it in heaven. But our views are limited and that's why we can never put my particular creed or my my theology, which is my cultural contextualization of it over and above other people's. I have to, you know, within the boundaries of orthodoxy and within the boundaries of biblical truth, mm -hmm. we have to give re freedom and uh, for people to be able to articulate the gospel according to their own cultural context. And they all have to be faithful to the gospel message. But uh, we can't impose on one another my particular uh, tradition, my worship style, my wording that I use, my my cultural concepts that I use to uh, in, in, interpret and communicate the gospel message in my particular culture. Um, is so I, I think we just have to live in that tension mm -hmm. again of loving God and loving our neighbor, um, and uh, and 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 you know again really giving uh, being faithful to the gospel, uh, which is the power of God and salvation, um, and not being ashamed of the gospel, but also we have to. Uh, you know, realize that, you know, and we even see that in scripture, right? I mean, Matthew calls Jesus the son of man uh, and John calls Jesus the logos, right? Matthew's communicating to Jews and John is communicating to Gentiles and they're both preaching the same message, the same Jesus, but they're saying it in very different ways to communicate it in the cultural concepts and language of the audience that they're speaking to. And that's what we have to be able to get back to uh, as a church today. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I, I appreciate your ministry and your uh, work that you're producing. And um, yeah, just thank you so much. Oh, thank you. You've just listened to another episode of Young and Sanctified. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends. <laughs>